Welcome everyone to the Unbalanced Note, the film composer interview series. We have a wonderful show today. I'm Brian Kluger and I am joined by the, the limitless and the limitless man and the guy I want to go through an entire building with taking out the bad guys, Mark Chafferdini, both in Dallas, Texas. How are you, buddy? Oh, I'm awesome. I've got uh, plenty of time, plenty of energy. I'm all psyched for this. Let's oh, I'm this. glad. I'm glad I'm glad you're here and we have a special guest today. You know, we have a, a musician, an amazing film composer of video games, movies, television shows. Oh my god, the world champion of music, Paul Leonard Morgan. How are you doing today? Drumroll. Mark, if that's your energy levels at high, I want to see them lower. <laughs> <laughs> We can work on that. We can work on that. <laughs> uh, Paul, so glad to have you on the show. For those uh, for those listening, uh, Paul Leonard Morgan has done music for the movies such as Dread, Limitless, and most recently Dynasty, The Nest, and Tales from the Loop. Uh, super great. So glad to have you here, Paul. And let's just start. I want to ask you first. Where did it all begin for you with music? Was it something you heard when you were little, a song you heard on the radio? Where did it all begin for you? Well, do you know, I mean, my mom's a music teacher, so always been surrounded by music. And she was always like, don't go into music. You won't make any money. It's awful. <laughs> it's, like, it's not about the music. It's about the passion. Um, so, you know, they're always very supportive. But I, I don't know, like everyone always goes, oh, I want to write film music, I want to do that. I was never one of those people. I just always wanted to write music. I remember kind of playing kind of crappy little kind of keyboards and stuff like that when I was 13 and the parents just sit there going, it's very good, darling, very good, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and then, I don't know, I went and studied it. I always remember kind of, everyone always says, well, why did you get into film music? And it was just one of those things I thought, I like, I like film and I like writing music and, you know, let, let's go and see what happens. I went to the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and I just, I, I fell in love with writing music and I, I got to know a lot of bands. I was working with a lot of bands because Glasgow had this really cool music scene. And then it's just one of these kind of synergy things where you go and work with bands and the film guys like the fact that you work with bands, it kind of makes you cool. And then you work with the bands and they, they like the fact that you work on films. And I don't know, it's just this nice thing. I don't care what I write for. I just love being immersed in music. I, I like that. And you, so you were talking about a little, little second ago about you getting like one of those little cheap keyboards that might get at Target or Walmart. I had one of those. What was the first song you learned on that that everybody was like, gave you a little applause? Do, do you know, my, my dad had this uh, track that he liked called the Nutcracker Suite. It was like the Nutcracker Suite, which was this old 60s thing. And it was literally just piano and the shittiest drumming, drum keyboard out. <laughs> I think I played that at a school concert. I think my, my uncle had died and left me about 10 quid and said, right, in his will. And so I went and spent that on this Casio keyboard. <laughs> that is that is great. I, I what missed... about you? First thing you played? Uh, the first thing I learned was the uh, Pink Panther theme on this little oh. Casio light blue thing. And then I learned to play it on clarinet and uh, tenor sax later on in school. 
I'm, I'm way too talented. I think I learned how to play um, You Are My Sunshine on a guitar and uh, maybe one or two Beatles songs. And uh, I don't remember what I learned on saxophone because that was a short-lived endeavor, but uh, I'm still with the guitar. I'm surrounded by talent here. <laughs> no, we're surrounded by talent, but I think, you know, is it true, you being in the music industry, that if you play saxophone, you have to play it shirtless? If you play saxophone, you're dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Uh, so what was your first foray into the film uh, score? Like, what, how did you get into that business? So when I was at the academy, and I just, I just left there, this was in Glasgow in Scotland, and I got the opportunity to work on a couple of short films. And you, know, you get so many people that always say, well, what's the point of doing short films or whatever? And it's like, well, because you've got to learn your trade somewhere and you've got to learn your craft and, and how it all works. And I remember doing that and I thought, this is quite fun, but I, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing, to be honest. That's my motto of my life. Like, genuinely, I just love trying different things. And I, and, I, and I really enjoyed it. And the guys said, well, why don't you get some strings in? So managed to get about 10 string players and it won a BAFTA. So I was like, oh, this, this is quite, this is quite fun. I like this. And so, and genuinely it was from that, it was about a 20 minute film. Um, but I learned a lot from doing it. And then having got the BAFTA, I then got a TV series and someone said, oh, he's quite good. You know, let's, let's try him out. And then, I don't know, it, it's all, always these things, they, they lead to different things, but it's not why you do them. You do them just because you're learning from it and you're loving doing it. And for me, it was just the opportunity to get some live players and it was really good fun. So your first outing into the film music world, you win a BAFTA. Where do you go from there? <laughs> Down. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was a film called Origins of the Pineapple. So it won BAFTA for Best Newcomer. And I remember going and picking up the award from Craig Armstrong, who was a, a mentor and a great, amazing composer, also in Scotland. Um, he did like Moulin Rouge and those kind of things. And yeah, and I remember chatting to him and he was just like, yeah, he gave me lots of advice. But I think it, the, the, the most thing is that if I'm stuck in a studio the whole time staring at a screen, it's my screen up there. But if I'm stuck staring at a screen all day, I get quite bored. It's not like attention deficit thing, but I would go insane if I just did film. Whereas kind of working with bands or working on video games and working on other things, I always find that what you learn from one thing then takes you into into the next thing. It doesn't matter whether you're writing, I don't know, music for advertisements, which is what I did when I started out, or writing TV themes or writing soundtracks. There's always something, whether it's drum programming or how to use the next synthesizer or the keyboard or whatever. Those little things just kind of lead on to the next gig, really. Well, well how does your personal taste in music align with the projects that you choose? Are you a cyberpunk fan? Are you a Philip Glass minimalist? How do, how do, how do you choose something? And is it based on what you like personally? It's a really good question. Um, you've got to be invested in the project. I can't see the point of taking on a project. You know, when you work on films, it's 20 hour days that last three weeks of a project. You know, you are fried and you don't see anyone. But man, it's fun. So, you know, you've really got, so you've really got to love what it is that you're doing. And I always think that if you're sitting there staring at the screen, again, just going back to that whole screen thing, there's got to be something that calls you into a project. Otherwise, you're not doing yourself a favor and you're certainly doing a disservice to the directors and the filmmakers that you're collaborating with. So, for example, you know, talk about Philip Glass and Tales in the Loop. I've always been a Philip fan. He's, I think, most people in the world are, but there's something about his talent and his style which I, I just adore that. I've always said it does something without doing anything. And I think that's why a lot of filmmakers and particularly documentary makers like his music because 
the chords progress and the tunes progress, but it's ever so slightly and it doesn't draw your attention away to what you're watching on screen. And I remember when I was working with Errol Morris for the first time, it was on Wormwood and the film called The Side. And Errol had said the same. He said, oh, you've got very similar sensibilities to Philip, but in a different style. He said, you're kind of not more modern, but it's kind of you use these weird sounds that go with your orchestra, whereas Philip's style is obviously beautiful and, and very classical. Um, and so he said, yeah, it is interesting kind of seeing the similarities. And I think, again, you know, that's where the whole Tales and the Loop thing came. It was like, well, there's Philip, there's Paul, they're the same, but different. It's going to be quite interesting to chuck them in a room with each other and see kind of you know, how, it, how it evolves as a style. So yeah, you really need to be into the style of music that you're, that you're writing for that particular film. It doesn't mean that you need to be necessarily good at it in the sense that it's your forte, but you need to be able to kind of really like the style that you're going to be doing for that film, or I can't see the point in that. Well, you know, you, you talked about being in a room for 20 hours a day and, you know, whether it's the lockdown or just normal, um, you know, operating procedure, a lot of composers find themselves siloed. And so do you find more help or more inspiration dealing with other musicians or when you talk to the director, someone who maybe not doesn't know music, is there some sort of weird magic that happens when somebody doesn't know what they're talking about? Yeah, I do, completely. And it's the same I don't know if it's the same maybe as a writer or the same with anything you do. You have a thing called muscle memory. So for me, I'm a pianist. Um, so you sit down at a piano. And I think it was Malcolm Gladwell that said this. You can kind of sit down and you can play something and it takes whatever, a hundred attempts at writing something before you can actually sort of come up with something original. So you sit there and you play and your hands just know they're on C major. And then it's like, okay, I want to try something different. Oh no, that's the last tune that I was writing and so on. And you keep going. So that becomes very similar to what you've done before. Whereas if you pick up an instrument that you haven't played ever before, then you suddenly, you really don't know what you're doing. I'm an awful guitarist, for example. Um, so genuinely, it's so bad. So all I can do is play kind of fifths on my guitar. Um, but, so when everyone goes like, oh, how did you get that sound? And it's like, well, I don't know, but I'm never gonna be able to get it again. <laughs> uh, and I remember, and again, the one that got after for, I, there was another one called Fallen, and I got a hammered dulcimer, which is like a symbol, where it's, it's like a, an open piano, basically. If you picture it like that on its side, you're just hitting the strings. And I didn't know what I was doing, but man, it had some really cool sounds on it. Whereas if I was a proper dulcimer player, I'd be playing it very, very different. Um, so yeah, so like all of those things, I think it definitely helps, if you, not if you don't know what you're doing, but if you're ready to adventure. So going back to your question about like musicians bringing stuff on board or directors bringing stuff on board, I mean, Tales in the Loop is a prime example because the players that were in that, we started off with a big orchestra in Nashville for episodes one, cut it down to a kind of quartet for episode two. And then we recorded in LA for three and four and five and six. And the players on that became almost the sound of the show. Suddenly this glorious cello that was coming over the top. Like, oh my God, the sound. But it wasn't just any cello. It was the sound of his, his cello specifically. It was like, right, I'm going to write some more stuff that's going like that for the next episodes. And then the violinist we had coming in, you're suddenly, I mean, it is, it's all collaborations in art. And the violinist, I said, well, look, can you try playing it like this or do it on a harmonic or do it like this? And you'd never be able to see that in a million years in your samples on your computers, but by getting them in, then she goes, well, how about this? <gasps> yeah, but try it like this and try it like that. And I definitely, going back to lockdown, I definitely miss that because you're recording everything remotely at the moment. So you can try certain things, but it's not as much fun as having a player in the same room as you. 
So you just mentioned cello and violin, and that, that's similar to guitar, which you said you don't play that well. So how, how do you go about writing something for an instrument that you don't play? And maybe, like you said, the dulcimer, you don't understand what you're doing, but you just kind of, you know what you want, and you leave that up to somebody else to fill in the blanks. Sure. So, I mean, I play, I play a lot of instruments just very badly. So, I mean, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I won't play these days, sorry. But, like, um, violin, you know, I, I did all my grades um, and stuff like that. So, I know what I'm doing with strings, and I played viola and all this stuff. So, I would do string arrangements for bands. So, I, mean, I know exactly what I'm doing with strings and compare okay. Which is why it's very annoying when you have someone sit at a piano going, oh, listen to this string sound. You do know that it can go kind of thing. So you can always tell when someone's written for something and they don't really know what they're doing. But then there are other times, I don't really play brass instruments, and you go in and then you just ask them. It's like, hey, Mr. Horn guy, or hey, Miss Trumpet player, or whoever, how would you do this? I've got this great tune. And I'm totally up for that. And I think there are two different sorts of composers. It's not that one's better than the other. But I think sometimes you just, it's best just to give them the vibe and say, well, look, here's the tune. Is there a better slurring? Is there a better phrasing that you can do? Is there a better this? And they said, well, you can do this, but it might be better in a different register. And again, when I was starting out, it was really cool because you had all these players in Glasgow that were just coming in to do sessions. And whether it was for bands or films, they, I don't know, it's just about a vibe. So they would come and say, hey, let's try doing this an octave up or an octave down or whatever. And again, it's just that experimentation when you collaborate with people. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, I, I get that too. I'm, I'm uh, in a creative business myself. I work for an architecture company and you do have that sort of got to try revisions and different options and see what happens. But no, okay, that's but awesome. When people give you feedback, is there a right and a wrong way to do it to get you on the site? Genuinely. Like, so it's not a case of, oh, this is crap. It's a case of, look, I like what you've done there. Why don't we try going that route? Is there a way that gets your back up? Like when people say that, or is there a way that really gets you going, oh, I hadn't thought about that? Well, a lot of times it's uh, it, it's a perception thing. You know, what works good for you might not work good for me or vice versa. But uh, I guess the only way that it's wrong is if uh, the building doesn't stand up. So literally, you can do any way you want. Just don't let it fall down. <laughs> yeah, there's a fundamental, you've helped the film or you've helped the house, as opposed <laughs> to, right, this is a real total train wreck. <laughs> exactly. Because yeah, I, I think particularly, you, you can't go into being a soundtrack composer as a kind of, it's all about the music, it's a music video, because it's not. Your first and foremost thing is to help the emotion of a film. And when you look at it at the end, obviously you want to be proud of it, and obviously you want to feel, wow, that's, that's really taken something. But you almost want to be as proud of the fact that you reached the end and made the director happy, the producers happy, and yourself happy, and you've done something different, because it's never going to be your first, you're going to be very, very lucky if it's your first attempt at, at of your, what I call the first pass, and everyone goes, yeah, that's great, it suits it to a T. There's almost no fun and challenge in that. The challenge is kind of getting those people on the side, finding out where it goes. I remember on Dread, Alex Garland, yeah, by the end of it, I'd done a completely different soundtrack to what we'd started at at the beginning, because at the end, like halfway through, I said, can I just try a little dance beat underneath this? And I've just got some four and four kicks. It was a track called Mini Guns. And I suddenly really got into it. And I was like, oh man, this is totally different to what I did. I'm just going to go and rescore the whole thing. Give me a week. And I went back onto it. But it's only by having those collaborations with directors that take you down a completely different route that you're going to end up in a good place like that. And at the end, you think, I've got no idea how I got here. But <laughs> it was quite cool. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Do you uh, find yourself having more freedom or uh, having a more challenging 
uh, experience when transitioning to doing music to video games, to television, to movies? And what's the process like with that? Well, as far as which do I have more freedom with? Yes. Depends what the project is. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the last two and a half years, I've started, I say two and a half, whatever, two, three, this year alone seems to have gone for about a decade. <laughs> but I think I've just started doing my thing and stopped, I don't mean in an arrogant way, but kind of you, going back to what you said about the styles and you find your style and it's not that you're trying to go in to imitate someone. You're just like, look, I think that this is what your project calls for. Let me try it. If it doesn't work, then fine, we'll go a different direction, but let me go with my gut instinct for this. And I think as you're learning your craft, you're sort of maybe a little less confident about that and you're trying to please people more. Whereas I think that people come to you because they think that you're gonna bring something interesting to the project. So once you've done something interesting, they'll either go, my God, that's amazing. Or yeah, not quite right. Or there's some nuggets in there that we can start going with. But I think when you start doing that and going with your creative freedom, then you're gonna get some more interesting results. And Errol was the master at that on Wormwood because he phoned up after about, I think it was episode three, it was about CIA mind control basically. And I'd done some really weird and wacky electric cello stuff and Errol's worked with Philip Glass all his life. So I'm kind of going, I don't know if he's gonna be up for this. And so definitely like the first week or so, I was thinking, is he gonna like it? Is he gonna like it? Because Philip scored his previous, whatever, four or five films. And then when he phoned up and said, man, you completely nailed this. I love this. Who have you plagiarized it from? It's far too good to be you. you know, <laughs> and he puts you at ease, but then he gives you, as he does as an interviewer, he gives you enough rope to you know, hang yourself almost. It's like, well, here you go, you know, all, all yours, you know, go off you go. And as an interviewing technique, it's really good because gets people to speak a lot and becomes rear and then they become really relaxed in his company and maybe say things that they shouldn't do haha got you whereas as a composer he lets you just do your own thing and then just reels you back in a bit but it's giving you again god i've used about five thousand words to say what i could have said in a sentence but it's giving you that confidence to go and try something new and it's when you're given those creative freedoms that i think you get the most exciting stuff that's really cool and so i guess the next project that you're working on that might have been released that you maybe mentioned earlier is Cyberpunk 2 2077, the new video game coming out. Is it is something you're really excited about? <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievably excited about it. Um, can't say that much about it, except for today's, uh, was it Night, Night City Wire? Uh, so they, they're gradually kind of releasing tidbits. But um, yeah, it's 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 ground what can i say that i'm allowed to say it's groundbreaking and it's really good but it really is groundbreaking and it really really is really good <laughs> and do you get to play any of these video games while you're doing the music or do you yeah engage in it, that at all? yeah yeah you um they put marcin board over his computer so i'm yeah, writing with two other composers and when, when marcin came over he was showing me this was what a year ago i guess some, some of the initial kind of graphics for it and I remember just sitting there and he's sitting in the studio with me and he's just playing the game and I'm just sat there going, getting paid for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. And uh, going to your music on the TV show Dynasty, uh, coming to that rebooted TV series, is it, was it fun going and watching the old series and implementing all of that old music and into your, old, your, new, your new stuff? 
you know, what is amazing and slightly sad about Dynasty is that I used to peek through, I was sent to bed at 8.30 by my parents, and in the UK, Dynasty and Dallas, we call it Dynasty. Okay, so I've had that slap out of it. But it's like, <laughs> Dynasty and Dallas would be on at 8 o'clock and it would finish at 8.50. So you'd always miss the cliffhangers. So you would be up to bed, boys, so me and my brother, and then we'd come down and sneak and kind of peek through the corner of the door and see what was going on. And I remember Sally, who I'd worked with on Limitless, she was the showrunner of episodes one and two. And she phoned me up and said, I've got this thing and I don't really know what to do with it how do I go about rebooting the theme? So do, I want to do it kind of maybe hip hop or maybe put on some kind of beats underneath it. And I listened to it. The playing was shit. I remember it having this amazing orchestra. <laughs> and actually listening to it, I mean, it was, it was what we call vibey, you know, but it was like, wow, there's not an awful lot I can do with that. But the theme itself was amazing. But it was just, you know, it was probably an orchestra that I think it was the ABC orchestra that had been in there for about 10, 15 minutes and played it. And it, and it was it, great for its time. So we ended up getting Tom Hooten, who's the trumpet player from the LA Phil, who plays all the Star Wars stuff. And uh, you know, <laughs> he comes in and said, I'm really sorry I was late. I was on stage with John Williams last night at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, here's the dynasty theme. What are you going to do with that? <laughs> and it's like top, top D. I mean, there's very few players in the world that can make it. Um, Morris in London, when he was like with James Bond stuff, he would do the same. But it's just unbelievable. And suddenly you're saying, we've got T-Wiz, who's a programmer um, and an artist who I've worked with before. So he came in and did some beats on it. It was just quite, it was quite a fun thing to do. Yeah, and when they say to you, well, what are you going to do for the soundtrack? I was like, well, let's have some beats. And you kind of think, we'll have some beats in a quartet. And they go, well, that doesn't sound very dynasty. And it's like, I know, but let's give it a try. So again, it's about doing that. And then they go, all right, and as the scores progressed more, we go into Capitol Studios maybe once a month um, and record a load of kind of new material for the different episodes, as well as kind of using old stuff. But it's just about having those beats in the quartet. And again, it's something, I guess, kind of, it's like a guilty secret, isn't it? It's something that's quite you know, fun to try out. That's great. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I think film fans are very loyal and very loving and, and just appreciate the work that goes into the compositions. But I think that video game, music fans take it to another level. And I wonder, is it because the sheer quantity of music that you're asked to write, it just welcomes them, whether it's a scary blanket or an adventurous blanket? Do you have any, have any thoughts on why they're so diehard? I think that people who get into games have such a vested interest in that game. If you, it's different, like if you watch a TV program or a film, now because all the theatres are shut. But when you're sat down, and I say this specifically because when you're watching it in your lounge, you know, in your living room and you, you've got the TV on, you have so many distractions. You've got your phones, you've got your Instagram, you've got your Facebook, you've got your Twitter, you've got what's going on. You, you're kind of aware of what's going on in the film, but very, not very many people are solely invested in that for an hour and a half, except for big film buffs. And the big film buffs are the ones that will email you and say, I loved your score, or, 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 or I, I adore what you did with that. With gamers, I think it's different because when you start playing a game, you're completely invested in it. Or I, I think most of the time people are completely invested in it. They'll put on their headphones or they'll be on Twitch or whatever, and, and they'll be going along and they might be chatting to people, but they're chatting to people specifically about the game and the gameplay and what they did. I mean, even my daughters with Minecraft Dungeons, you know, they're completely immersed in it. So what I love about the gaming community is they feel 
a total kind of ownership of that game. I mean, for good and for bad, okay, they might go, but they, they're quite a passionate lot, should we say. But genuinely, I think that they feel ownership of it. So if they feel, oh, wow, yeah, that piece of music always oh, really getting me into this, or there's a, a lot of the time programmers as well, actually, but game people, you know, you, a lot of people switch off. Which, oh, thanks a lot, guys. I spent three years on this game. And you're just switching <laughs> off. You don't listen to your flipping playlist. Cheers. Um, but, but a lot of the time, they're like, oh, it's all right, because I was playing Dread. I was like, oh, thanks. You know, let's go. That'll be <laughs> 0.0001 cent from Spotify, thanks. Um, but, it, but there's something about that. As I say, when they do have the music on, it's almost like the ultimate congratulations because it's like, well, not only are they playing it, not only are they invested in it, but they haven't got bored of it. And I think there is an appreciation genuinely by gamers of the art form of making games, whether it's the, the distributors and the publishing houses themselves that have spent however many years making it, and even if it doesn't work out and it's not the game they're after, I still think that they appreciate the fact that, man, these guys have spent their entire lives on crunch mode half the time, just you know, really, really trying to get that right. I remember on Dawn of War with the Relic guys, they'd spent, must have been about four years on it. And whilst it wasn't the massive hit that obviously we all hoped it would be, I think because they'd had already had Warhammer 1, 2 and, you know, 1 and 2, so this was the kind of third version of it, there was still a lot of love from the community as far as, well, all right, the game wasn't necessarily wanted, but man, that soundtrack nailed it. You know, they, they do look for positives. It's not just negative, negative, negative. Well, I, um, you know, I don't play video games anymore. I just, I don't have 40 to 60 hours to invest in any property except my work property, but I still love to this day, the, uh, the DuckTales music from the NES game. I mean, it's just five levels, but that's, it's so catchy. It just sticks with you. So, um, <laughs> So I've got I've got my Nintendo DS over there, which my wife bought me about a year ago, and I was playing. You've got all the kind of Donkey Kong stuff with the kids, and they still freaking love that lo-fi music. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's like here's my eight-bit versions. <laughs> uh, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, we spoke to Jason Graves on the episode about a month and a half ago, and uh, he scored Dead Space. And I asked about Easter eggs, and he actually said that his theme is D E A D, Dead. So yeah, th thanks uh, for spelling that out for me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, do, you know, you you just spend so much time on it uh, on these projects. How much how much fun do you get to do? To do you put in Easter eggs? Do you put in things that just make your life a little more enjoyable? A lot, actually. And again, you know, the, there's stuff in Cyberpunk. There's also stuff in Dawn of War which people still haven't found. But it it's, it it amuses us as really sad geeks that, as I say, are just kind of stuck in it. I mean, I show you too. So, th so this is my this is my studio. This is my studio, right? So wow. I can't show you what's on the screen, but there you go. Uh, so is that Doctor Phil? <laughs> I told you it was all downhill from the back. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the curse so, of the so Oscar. So you get to play with stuff like these guys, which are great, and so it's all your mad sense. But the fact is that. <laughs> you don't speak to many people. So your brain does start going into overtime. And, you know, I'll go and make cups of tea in my main live room, which is through there, which is where I have a little kitchen as well. And you make cups of tea in the middle of the night and you go for a, a little walk around the studio and then you kind of go, oh, I'll tell you what would be fun. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. And it might literally be kind of a little two second theme or you hint at something in another part or whatever. But those Easter eggs are great because people come back two years later and going, ah. And then it's not just for music. I remember, this isn't just dread, 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 but it's just because it's quite relevant to this conversation. Alex Garland put in a load of Easter eggs as they come down. There's a scene where Mama goes slow-mo down tower, uh, a tower block. Um, and 
he had put in the names of a load of hardcore fans as graffiti on the middle of the tab. I mean, you literally see it for a frame. Wow. As, and they found them within about, I don't know, a month and a half. I'm going to people literally just sit there <laughs> going forth frame by frame by frame of an entire film. I don't, fair play to them. And it, again, talking about passionate fans, it's bloody great because that means that you're doing it for someone that really gives a shit about it. Whereas I think if you just did music for something, oh, that's great, thanks. Goes back to what I was saying about collaborations. You know, if people just accept your music straight off, it's almost like, well, I'm glad you like it, but I came into this for a collaboration. I came into this to be pushed and pulled in a different direction because that for me is where the buzz is as a composer. So it's nice when you do have those geeks that finally find those Easter eggs. So yeah, it's really, and I say geek in the nicest way. I'm a geek. So I say geeks in the nicest way. <laughs> the collective geek, I get you. Yes. <laughs> I like that. Um, so can you describe your first meeting with Philip Glass and did he tell any great jokes? You see, you think that he's a dry character. He is not a dry character. He did not tell me good jokes. Uh, other than the fact that I expect you to do some work. What? <laughs> Philip genuinely is one of the most humble human beings I've ever met. And I, I say that having met a lot of not humble people as well. But he was just so warm, so enthusiastic, so positive and supportive. So... You're going over there to meet Philip. I was saying, you know, I'm all right as a composer. I do all right. Uh, as, and then I go over to meet Philip and I'm kind of thinking like, but this is Philip. And I've worked with how many bands. I don't get starstruck by bands, but there was something about meeting Philip for the first time. So I got off the red eye to New York. Um, and yeah, and just got on a cab, got to his house. And he opens up the door when you ring the doorbell. <laughs> so, and, and again, I think in my mind, I don't know, I don't know what I expected, but uh, but it was genuinely. So he said, "Oh, come in, Paul, come in, come in, come in." And we went downstairs to his kitchen, and I've told this story before. Yeah, I had a cup of coffee with him, and it was just this very surreal moment. He's there dipping his tea bag, and I'm talking about how bad American tea is. Tea just tastes rubbish over here. Uh, what brand of tea do you like? Well, Tetley or PG, but I find that Yorkshire tea works the best. And, you know, and you're talking about tea and coffee with Philip, and it's like, okay, I suppose we probably should talk about Tales in the Loop at some stage. But it, in the same way that it takes a while to get on people's wavelength, as far as a, a filmmaker, I've never collaborated with a composer before. He's never collaborated with a composer before like this. So we didn't really know how the hell to go about it. So we were chatting and, and I think the most important thing is just to get to know someone as a character. It's one thing chatting away to someone, like it's great chatting away to you guys, oh, FaceTime, Zoom, whatever this is. <laughs> but it's a completely different thing when you've actually got to get to write with someone because you know it's very important to be able to see people's eyes, but then when that's over with, it's body language as well. You guys might have your legs crossed or be wearing, I don't know, whatever, where you don't get the full picture. And it's only by sitting with someone and getting their reaction to when you play a tune. Oh yeah, I like that. How about we try this? Which well, is exactly what we then did. Went to his piano, started playing, started going through chords, started going through melodies. You couldn't have done that over, well, certainly at the moment, you know, with the COVID-19 and stuff. So getting the chance to do that with Philip then, we just spent a day hanging really. And you know, his, his, his uh, kitchen's downstairs and then you go up to his studio and that's where his grand piano is. And he's got manuscript paper absolutely everywhere. And you know, from his operas, from his ballets, from, you know, from everything. It's all handwritten. So whereas for me, 
I'll only do that if I'm writing piano music for kind of orchestra stuff. I find it a lot faster to do on the computers. Um, it's a kind of, you don't necessarily have the time to do that for soundtracks. So Philip started sending me stuff a couple of weeks later and sending me manuscript paper. <laughs> like, I mean, this is amazing, but bloody hell, can you just make a MIDI file out of it so I can put it into my computer? You know? <laughs> He's analog. <laughs> I know, but you say analog. <laughs> so Mark, a wonderful director of episode one, Mark Romanek, and he said, I want this score to be analog. In my head... <laughs> That is analog, because oh, right? wow. <laughs> it's an analog synthesizer from Russia. Thank you very much. But it's an analog synthesizer. So again, Philip started, I mean, that was our very first sketches as Philip's gone and done a load of piano stuff. I've said, oh, all right, let's get a cello melody over the top of that. And then I took it and almost did a little remix of it. I started putting on these weird kind of sounds thinking, Tales from the Loop, it's sci-fi. Because we hadn't seen any, any of the film by that stage. All we'd seen was some images from Simon Stolenhag's wonderful books. But I didn't understand that, I mean, it could have been gone down a Stranger Things vibe, you know? It could have been very sci-fi, 80s kind of thing, which is great, by the way, I love it. But it's totally not that. And Mark's like, well, like I mean, I love it, but what are those weird sounds? I was like, oh, that's the analog. He's like, no, that's the digital. He's like, no, that's not digital. That's bloody analog. How dare you slur my... <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, after that, is it, again, going back to that whole wavelength thing, when you start understanding what people are talking about, it's like, great, we'll get rid of that. And you suddenly realise genuine Tales from the Loop then is this incredible thing where you're just writing purely for analogue, for classical instruments, and what you're trying to do in the series itself, it's sci-fi, but it's not really sci-fi. It's not about, it's about weird and wonderful things happening, but it's, that's not just what it's about. Like in Lost, suddenly it's about how's this how's this all come about? Is it some big buzzy thing underground or something? Tales in the Loop is all about these strange things that happen in a town and it's caused by this eclipse, uh, this thing that's under the ground. But you never really find out what it's about. It's much more about the tales of humanity, about the tales of connectivity that happens, which is why Mark and Philip and I, when we did go down that route in the end of It's Just Real Instruments, I really think that it holds up as a soundtrack to listen to by itself. It's not just about film music. It's about go away and listen to this. And we've had so many people, I mean, literally thousands of people sending emails and texts and whatnot, saying they've really found the soundtrack, helps them through coronavirus. And people that have had it, people that haven't had it, people in Milan who were in lockdown when all oh, shit was hitting the fan and I think it was February, no, it can't be February. April, May, something, something like that, maybe April, when Italy had shut down the entire towns. And it was sending me one say, my grand's just died. I think my dad's about to die and I'm stuck in my house and I'm listening to your music on loop and I'm finding it so serene and calming and it's really helping me through this time. Thank you so much. As a composer, that's almost like the ultimate compliment you can have, that it works outside of the actual film itself and that it helps people emotionally. I don't think there's a better compliment that someone could give you. No, I, th I, th I agree with you. I think music is like the life force in any film or TV show. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you can have too much of it as well. And you could not have enough of it. And so it might be the life force and it might be something that gives you that emotional pull. But I think the thing, going back to Tales from the Loop about it, is that you have this re repetitiveness of it. And going back to Philip's style as well, how it gradually evolves. I think the thing of kind of writing melodies over the top that work, that people can hum, that people can hear, Nathaniel, the showrunner, had said that time and time again. He said, I want there to be melodies. There's going to be so much space in the show for music it's almost like our secret weapon 
because this is a negative space, Mark would always say, it's about the silences as much as the music that's there. So that the, by having a minute of silence and sometimes no talking as well, which is very uncomfortable viewing, but by having no talking and by having no music, you then earn the payoff that when the music comes in, it's there for a reason. And it really then has a much more emotional and profound effect than it just being wall to wall music throughout the entire thing. Awesome. That's really cool. Uh, let me ask you. Yeah, some I, can, I can be serious sometimes. No, you, know? you do. No, no. Let, let's, let's get into the fun questions right now real quickly. Let's get into the fun questions. So let, let me ask you. What is your most thrilling music experience, both as a, a talent and as a fan? Whether it's a concert you saw, somewhere you performed? As a fan, well, actually, well, uh, it's joint, because once is my ego and once is my fan. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I'll tell you my ego one first, because I'm amazing. Uh, I wrote the music for Test Track, which is this thing at the Epcot Center at Disney World. Um, and it's basically, it's a, it's a car thing which has been there for about, I think 25 years, 30 years or something. And it's just got revamped a few years ago and I got to write the music for it. I'd never been to Disneyland or Disney World and I flew out, they flew me out to Orlando. Ever? I'm from Scotland. <laughs> but you're in LA. <laughs> Paris, which on the scale of things is not quite as good. <laughs> um, so I have now, can I just say, you know, I've been many okay. times, I'm a convert, but, but yeah, so they flew me out to Orlando. I'd written the music, recorded it at the Eastwood scoring stage in, here in LA and went there. And yeah, I'm just on a total buzz because I, I just, as I said, I love writing music. And I get out there and they've got a car, pick me up from the airport. And I get out there and it, the place is shut except for the firework display that's going off. Um, so all the rides are shut. And it was probably, it must've been about nine o'clock at night. And I get out the car and my music is blasting out the speakers at the Epcot Center. And nice. I was there to help mix it. And yeah, I'm mixing it on a roller coaster on a wireless network between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. every day for three days. I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt because I thought it was lovely weather over there not at bloody two o'clock in the morning it's not so i'm on a roller coaster wearing a hard hat with you know, nothing finished and they've got this wireless network you're on pro tools while you're on the roller coaster trying to kind of oh, 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 hang on volume up volume down volume up but that was amazing having my music blasting out the first time that i'd ever been to anything disney it was wicked um whereas highlight gig rolling stones at the giant stadium um in is it new jersey by, by job fees. Uh, yeah, I think Rutherford, New Jersey. Yeah. And this must have been about 10, 12 years ago, something like that. Never been a massive, like, obsessive Rolling Stones fan, but I always really liked them. And I was working on, I'd just written the US Olympic anthem, and they'd flown me out to New York, and I was chatting with some people, and they took me out there. And I had three days of basically being treated like royalty. It was amazing. But um, they took me to the Stones gig, and I was about five rows from the front on kind of band, alloc band allocation tickets. This is great. And it was just the most incredible energetic gig seeing those guys. Bizarrely enough, I wrote a film on the Stones two years ago um, and doing a soundtrack then I was like really into it. But yeah, that was the most incredible gig. And the fact that I was that close to the front as well, it was just, yeah, it was one of those bucket list things as well. It was incredible. That's awesome. Um, also, what is the most curious, the strangest recording you have in your collection, whether it be like a, an outtake from a session you did or a strange uh, LP that you own? What's the most curious uh, recording in your collection? Or Owens and George, who was on the Galapagos Islands, 
when I was doing the Galapagos soundtrack and Lonesome George is a giant tortoise, turtle. And it's tortoise, this is awful, it was a long time ago. Giant tortoise. Um, and I have the sound of tortoises mating. And the sound guys had sent me a recording of it so that I could, uh, I think it was Lonesome George's buddy because I think he was the last, last giant one out there. And they'd sent me a recording of tortoises mating so that I could sample it up and incorporate it into my soundtrack. And it was like this nine minute, <laughs> I mean, without sounding like a total juvenile so-and-so. It was like, it was about nine minutes. And I was like, what am I waiting for? What am I waiting for? And then after about seven minutes, just hear it. Ah. <laughs> what am I going to do with that? You know, pull stretch it out to make it last a little longer so I can make it some sort of sample out of it. But, um, but I remember the guy, genuinely, you know, those guys are out there with, the, with their mics and stuff. And it was, it was quite, I don't know if you have any use for this or not. And I was, yeah, so I, I, I still have that through there. <laughs> Thanks, BBC. So you inceptioned that turtle lovemaking, <laughs> drew it out. I use the word inception. I, I think it's a little close to home, but yeah. So, so <laughs> what could I do with that? And I, I did drag it out a bit, but I wasn't aware of full stretch then. So I made a sample out of it and did some stuff, but I don't know if it ever actually made the soundtrack. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, also, what are some of your favorite uh, music moments in film like that? that go back long way for you that you always think about some big musical uh, there are things that have that reason for have that reason for different reasons but um the mission uh had the most amazing soundtrack morricone that was the thing that got me into film music when i said earlier on i didn't know i was gonna do film music or not and suddenly i said my god that is just beautiful so the mission soundtrack awesome uh the john william classics like et and stuff just because i remember them as kids i still hum them and then we had movie night in our backyard the other day. I've got two kids and I'm going through all the 80s stuff like the Goonies and so on going like, come on guys, it's going to be cool. And I chucked on Indiana Jones and went da 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 Started going, da, 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 da. they've never heard this before. And I was, <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. And everyone uh, always disses a lot of his soundtracks just because they're jealous. Uh, but Zimmer's Inception soundtrack was absolutely amazing. I remember being in the cinema thinking, I need to pee because this is a three hour film. But about two hours in, I was just like, this soundtrack is amazing because it's so freaking clever. But also the fact that the production scales over everything about it just had me sitting on the edge of the seat. So I, I have very kind of random and varied likes um, for different reasons. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's if it's if it makes a film memorable, and there's something that you can then think back to years ago, thinking, I remember that soundtrack, and I remember that bit in the film as well. Then that's that's what I like about film music. Mm, I love it. Love it. Uh, Mark, any last questions? Yeah, this may hit a little close to home for you, but the, the other Scottish composer that I know uh, fairly well is Patrick Doyle. So you, you have an equal- might hit a bit close to home. Through <laughs> <laughs> <Brew> him. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, He's you guys late. are contentious. <laughs> um, what I mean is to say you guys both have this extremely high and energetic level of energy. So is there something in the water? Do you drink scotch on a daily basis? <laughs> what, what is the key to being so, uh, so high energy? 
You know, <laughs> so Paddy picked up some award, I think it was about two, 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 three years ago, the ASCAP Awards for Lifetime Achievement. And I'd never met him before. And you're totally right. It's, like, it's what a character. Um, but I got chatting away to him. And I think what it is, is Glasgow, it rains 367 days of the year. It's just, <laughs> it's just miserable, but it's also one of the most beautiful places on earth. And when it's sunny, like they've had for the last month, I've uh, been speaking to my mates over there, it's like no other place on earth. It's like daylight in summer, it's daylight till 11.30 in the evening. Sometimes it just doesn't, it's just, it's really hard to describe. But when it's raining, it's just miserable. And in winter, it's like three o'clock in the afternoon, it suddenly gets dark. So Sir Alex Ferguson, who's the manager of, or was the manager of Manchester United, Billy Connolly, who's the comedian, they all said the same things. Billy Connolly said that he got into comedy because he worked in the steel yards, which was the main job in Glasgow, whatever, 30 years ago. So imagine that you're sitting there on big things of steel, shipbuilding, which was the main industry then, and you're just frigging freezing. The, all you can do is tell jokes, and you've got to keep your sort of spirits up. And that's not why I am, but that's, I think that's why the background of Glasgow is just so wonderful. The people are so warm and friendly, because you kind of get through it together, and then everyone kind of sticks together. There's a really warm, welcoming vibe in Glasgow, which is just awesome. So I think the energy point of view is just, I think, in addition to that, it's just a case of, I love doing different things, but I've always had that little kind of ding, 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 right, what's next, what's next? But I think you keep your humour up and you keep, you know, whatever, because people are nice to each other. And I think if you're nice to each other, it's the hashtag, don't be a dick. I think it helps you keep your life. <laughs> I want a t-shirt with that on it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's mine. You owe me 10 cents. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then my last question for you, um, since we, on this network, we do a, a pro wrestling show and are you a fan of pro wrestling? Do you like any of the theme songs and entrance music? And are you aware that the current WWE champion is a Scottish, a Scottish man named Drew McIntyre? Are you being serious? No, yeah, I was not aware of that. I like cage fighting. I've never really been into WWE, but honestly, it's a Scotsman. Yeah, no, he, uh, Andrew McLean Galloway. He is a Scottish guy, and he is the current WWE champion, and he's amazing, and you'll love his entrance music. Is it McLean? Is that his middle name? Uh, McLean, yeah. McLean, honestly. Yeah, right. But he goes by Drew McIntyre as his character. That's a and great he, He's name. six foot six and he's huge. He's and what's the, what song does he have? Um, it, it's a song that they created, I believe, uh, what's the, the, WWE has their own in-house composer that does that, but it, it has like a mix of rock and roll and Scottish uh, music. And it's pretty oh, great, but. <laughs> what a job to be an in-house composer of something like that. I bet he's put on bloody bagpipes and I'll kill him when I hear it. So <laughs> <laughs> We'll send you the link to it. <laughs> <laughs> the hunk from Scotland, it is. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and talk with us about your life and career. Uh, Paul, is there anywhere you want to tell the listeners where to find you out on? on uh... Uh, go find me on Twitter, go find me on Instagram, all those kind of things. But I'm normally just spouting crap from my studio because like procrastinating, trying not to go and score the next kind of thing. It's like, just five more minutes, it's fine. One more tweet, it's all good. So <laughs> I think Twitter's following Morg, Instagram's Paul Enna Morgan, whatever. But, but in general, just be nice to each other. And thanks for all the energy, guys. Thank you. Thank you for the energy. Yes, and be excellent to each other. Bill and Ted. I love <laughs> it. Party on, dude. I can't wait to see that. <laughs> yeah, oh, we can't wait either. We actually just had Mark Isham on uh, the show, and he's doing part three. 
who's like 15 minutes down the road and my mixer mixes his stuff as well. So yeah, it's so funny. Top guys. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> well, thank you so much again. That was fun. Stay safe, guys.